Hi again, everyone. This is Mark Mofsesian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's. Uh, my colleague, Mark Dijerami, can't be with us for this podcast. He sends his regrets. He'll be back on a future episode. Um, but today in our podcast, what I'd like to do is interview a couple of scholars about a really important issue in American law, namely the rise of the nuns. Now, we, the, the genesis for this podcast is that last week, uh, the center, our center, the Center for Law and Religion, co-sponsored, along with the St. John's Law Review, a panel discussion on this issue. Uh, and the panelists were myself and Professor Greg Sisk of the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota, and Professor Steve Collis, who's at the Beck Laughlin Center at, on the First Amendment, I hope I got that pronunciation right, uh, at the University of Texas School of Law in Austin. And the three of us talked about some work that we've been doing in this area. And because we didn't tape the panel, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to do a podcast to let everybody know what we're talking about um, and the kind of issues back and forth. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the rise of the nuns and the impact on American law. Gentlemen, let me let me welcome you both. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thanks. This is this is exciting. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to this. That was that was first Greg Sisk and then Steve Collins. So not everybody. I, I realize on a podcast there's not a video link, but first it was Greg. Okay, well, let's begin. And Professor Sisk, I'd like to begin with you and talk about your paper first. And actually, I should tell our listeners that um, Greg Sisk's paper is going to be appearing in a forthcoming edition of the St. John's Law Review. It's a paper he wrote with Professor Michael Heiss at Columbia, uh, Cornell, excuse me, at Cornell Law School. Um, and it was actually the genesis for this panel uh, because we knew that Professor Sisk was publishing here and we thought it'd be a really nice opportunity to get some people together. So Greg, why don't you tell us about the basic gist of your paper? Thanks very much, Mark. And, and thank you again for including me in this and my appreciation to uh, St. John's and the students uh, and, and, and participants in the symposium there. So Professor Heiss, uh, Michael Heiss and I have been doing empirical studies of religious liberty decisions in the federal courts uh, over a period of some 30 years. Uh, and so this is the third iteration of our ongoing empirical examination of these religious liberty decisions. And in particular, this part of our study focused on digested establishment clause decisions by federal circuit and district judges uh, from 2006 through 2015. Um, and the focus again is on the establishment clause, which, uh, which directs that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And as uh, my, my fellow panelists know, and I'm sure most of those listening know, this has generated decades of controversy uh, regarding the appropriate role of religion in public life. Uh, so in this particular uh, part of our study, uh, we found that Catholic judges approved Establishment Clause claims at a 29.6% rate compared with a 41.5% rate before non-Catholic judges. This finding was not particularly surprising and is consistent with findings involving uh, interactions by Catholic judges with Establishment Clause claims going back many decades. But unprecedented in prior empirical studies, we also found that judges without a religious affiliation, that is falling within the growing demographic of the so-called nuns, were also significantly less likely to uphold an Establishment Clause claim. So holding all other variables constant, uh, the predicted probability that a judge without a religious affiliation would approve an Establishment Clause claim was 24.9% whereas judges with a religious affiliation approve such claims at a 40.0% rate. So interestingly, and perhaps counterintuitively to some, our study suggests that a decrease in religious affiliation in society 
may not inevitably be accompanied by a secularist opposition to acknowledgement of religion in the public square or the robust participation of religious persons uh, and entities in public life. So, yeah. so if yeah. I could ask about that, Greg, so, so it's a really interesting paper. And I have to say that um, what you just said is to me the most interesting part of that paper, which is, you know, we would expect that nuns, that is people who lack a religious affiliation, would be actually in favor of establishment clause challenges. You know, they would be resistant to public displays of religiosity. You think, well, maybe it will make them feel a bit alien. Maybe it will make them feel like they're second class citizens. Um, but you say, in fact, that isn't the case. And now it's a little more complicated. If you can, I'd like you to go into a little more of the detail, because I think you said it depends on exactly where the nuns are, like the jurisdiction in which these nuns are, are serving. But I have to say, it, it does strike me as very counterintuitive what you're saying. I, you know, I, I think that that's right. And it's certainly not what we were initially expecting. Of course, it's always uh, uh, um, a bad idea to go in with expectations when you're doing an empirical study. You want to let the data uh, speak for itself. Um, so, you know, just to say a little bit more about the study itself, uh, uh, we, we included the entire universe of Establishment Clause decisions uh, that are available uh, digested in Westlaw, including both published and unpublished decisions. Um, and this gave us a, a, a data set of about 498, well, not about, exactly 498 judicial participations um, and uh, for the Establishment Clause part of it. So we did not find that uh, counter to what might be the conventional wisdom that the nuns on the federal bench are a force for secularization on the separation of church and state side of things. Um, in, in the general population, as, as you know, the number of nuns has been growing uh, rather dramatically. Uh, uh, one study suggested it was about 26% of the population in 2019. There's every reason to believe it's probably a little bit higher today. And we found that the number of federal judges who do not report a federal uh, a religious affiliation is, has been growing as well. For the very first period of, of, of our study from 1986 to 1995, uh, unaffiliated judges were about 5.5% of our observations. But for this latest time period, which is again is 2006 to 2015, it had doubled to 11.5%. Um, so what does account for this? Well, one way to look at this is to consider uh, expansive equality as being a signature characteristic of the nuns, as you, Mark, have, have suggested as well. Uh, so I think that means that uh, on the free exercise side of things, uh, nuns would tend to vigorously oppose an exemption uh, for a traditional religious believer uh, from a law prohibiting discrimination in commercial services, say, on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, but nuns might accept equal inclusion of religious entities, among others, in receiving government benefits or allowance of, of tax credits. Um, in addition, the emergence of this group of the nuns, they have not been party to the interreligious uh, conflicts that have uh, run through history among, uh, in, in the Western world, Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. So they might be less likely to feel exclusion or to take offense uh, from government acknowledgement of Christianity's at least prior predominant influence uh, in American culture and things such as celebration of Christmas as a holiday or public display of, of, of uh, Christian imagery during that season. So while radical egalitarianism and thus any departure from equality norms uh, is, is a key characteristic, we shouldn't, I think, assume that they have uh, taken on the historical role of religious minorities in demanding expungements from every aspect of 
uh, of public life. So when it comes to seeing religious symbolism appearing in a public venue or religious groups having access to public benefits on equal terms with everyone else, the nuns might be indifferent or, or even accepting uh, of that. Uh, so again, to, to borrow a term that you've used, Mark, uh, the nuns truly may be spiritual independence, which means you can't uh, readily conscript them into the militantly secular view of the public square. Greg, I have a question for you. Um, one thing I'm curious about is you talk about establishment clause cases, but as as the three of us know, there's different types of establishment clause cases. I'm curious, have you broken them down based on the types, for example, funding versus symbolism on government property versus religion in school. I'd be curious to know if there's any breakdown among the different types of establishment clause cases. We, we certainly do that in general. We haven't broken that down by um, the religious affiliation of judges. I mean, part of the problem you run into there is you begin to get to very small numbers. And so to try and draw uh, conclusions from that, um, we do categorize uh, um, uh, establishment clause uh, cases, as well as on our free exercise uh, cases by, uh, by factual category. So, for example, with uh, the larger group of Catholic judges, uh, uh, we have, have found over the years that they tend to be particularly uh, unsupportive of an establishment clause claim that arises in an education context, whether it involves uh, a, a public education or private education. And that's not particularly surprising since uh, uh, Catholics uh, experienced discrimination in public education uh, uh, early in, in American history. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, in fact, that Catholics developed the parochial school system, uh, which then uh, uh, they gained some support from in certain uh, communities. So uh, the antipathy uh, to establishment clause claims has been particularly pronounced there in uh, education cases. With respect to the nuns, we haven't broken, been able to break it down category in that same way. Great. Well, thank you, Greg. So, so that was one very interesting paper we discussed. Uh, another interesting paper, if I say so myself, <laughs> that we discussed uh, is my own paper. I guess I shouldn't say that, but I'll, I'll say it was my own paper, which is going to be appearing uh, very shortly in a symposium in the Loyola University Chicago uh, Law Review. And this is about the effect of the nuns, not so much on the Establishment Clause, but on the Free Exercise Clause. And, and the point of my paper is that nuns are increasingly appearing in the cases seeking, quote unquote, religious exemptions from public health laws, for example, some COVID mask requirements and vaccine requirements. Uh, and my paper argues that this is going to put pressure on the Supreme Court's definition of religion. And I, I kind of argue that actually the definition of religion should have community at its core so that the farther one gets away from a traditional religious community, the less plausible it is to claim that one exercises a religion. So if you have people who are really all on their own, coming up with their own religion, the way so many unaffiliated believers do, I think that's problematic for the definition of religion. But I'm not going to spend time talking about this paper because we have a prior episode in Legal Spirits about this. Instead, I want to talk about the third paper that we talked about in the panel, and that is Steve Collis's paper. And actually, Steve disagrees with me about what I just said. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you please tell us a little bit about your paper? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, having me, Mark. And I, I will call your paper interesting for you if that's if that's helpful for folks. Thank you. So I and I would like to say, you know, I don't know that I disagree with all of your arguments in the paper or even necessarily your conclusion. My my focus on where to place the nuns relates to a couple of strands of thinking when it comes to free exercise exemptions. But 
I know I encourage uh, listeners to go back and listen to your previous podcast because you have other arguments for why community might be an important thing to consider when defining religion beyond just the administrability of claims that I think is important and, and is something people should really consider on a theoretical level. Uh, so I tried to place the nuns and the rise of the nuns in the context of two strands of thinking when people talk about free exercise exemptions. Uh, one is what we've already talked about. Uh, as you all know, there's a long history of worrying about essentially what people would say is anarchy if we grant free exercise exemptions, right? If we grant exemptions to religious people, uh, to laws that are otherwise appear to be generally applicable, the worry that the Reynolds court said in, 18, uh, in the late 1800s and Scalia repeated was that everyone will become a law unto themselves and it just won't be administrable. And I think you make a fair argument, Mark, that the court has become more protective of religious free exercise. So if we end up with a world where we have lots and lots of nuns, each bringing their own idiosyncratic individualized claim, it very well could justify that concern about anarchy, which in my own opinion up to this point uh, has not been justified. So Steve, it sounds like you agree with me. I thought we'd have a disagreement here, but it sounds like I persuaded you. Yeah, yeah, right. So so where do I disagree? Um, I, I see the nuns a little bit differently. Um, I see that right now, at least, I mean, I'm open-minded to the fact that they may pose this problem. I'm just not convinced yet that they actually do. So one of the arguments uh, that various philosophers and others have made is that part of the, the nuns are part of a larger phenomenon of this increase of individualism in the Western world that we see. And, and the most extreme version of it would be expressive individualism. But this is this idea that uh, many people of our society have shifted from a world in which they see uh, that there is inherent meaning and order and the role of human beings is to, to discover that meaning and conform their lives to it, right? This is what we would equate with, I think, traditional religious views, that there is some deity or some transcendent truth beyond ourselves, and we have to order our lives with it. Um, the, the nuns uh, seem to be coming from a different worldview that has started to permeate Western culture, or at least the argument goes. And this is one in which the world really has no meaning, that there is no truth outside of ourselves, uh, that we are really nothing, that, that, that the world is really nothing more than raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So in that worldview, people who start crafting for themselves their own idiosyncratic religious views, I think are going to be far more likely to adopt the culture that is around them as a part of their religious identity. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no tone of judgmentalism in my voice about that. But what that means is I think it's far less likely that they will have religious practices or beliefs that will then put them at odds with the culture around them. Whereas more traditional believers who have commandments imposed upon them by some outside transcendent force are more likely, I think, to be at odds with the culture around them. So to the extent that that is correct, uh, that's probably where you and I disagree, only in the sense that I'm not sh convinced yet there's an actual problem here. I want to see more evidence that the nuns are actually going to have becoming an enough, you know, flood of claims that will actually have to worry about this anarchy concern. And as of right now, I just don't, I'm not convinced that's happening. I'm not convinced they're going to bring claims uh, at the rate that we have to worry about. Uh, and I'm not convinced that they're going to be willing to litigate those claims at that same rate. Okay, Steve. Well, well thank you. And, and by the way, thank you for pointing out that my paper, it doesn't only talk about these administrat administrability problems. There are also theoretical problems. But 
But I want to push back a little and I want to get Greg in again on this too, because in my paper, I do, I do discuss a few cases in which nuns, in fact, have brought challenges to, um, to civic regulations, to legal regulations on the basis of what they claim are religious beliefs. There's a case from Pennsylvania in which I talk about um, people objecting, parents objecting to mask mandates on the basis of, quote unquote, something else out there that just tells them masks will be a bad idea. Um, there were also some Christian parents who, I, I guess they're not nuns, they are, they call themselves Christians, but they have a rather idiosyncratic view. And their view was Christianity as opposed to masks, because masks dishonor the creator. So I do have some cases. And in fact, Greg has written another paper with Michael Heiss, which is in the Arizona Law Review, um, which, and I'll, let me come over to you, Greg, and then we'll give Steve a chance to answer. And Greg points out there actually are um, a significant number of cases in which religiously unaffiliated people bring claims, right, Greg? That, that, that's right. Um, so in a, another part of our study for the same time period, we looked at free exercise claims. And uh, um, well, overall, our, our study was, in my view, very encouraging, finding that for the most part, a certain equilibrium, as we call it, has been found in which increasingly people from different religious communities are treated the same with respect to free exercise claims. But there are exceptions to that. And one of those is, is, is as you suggested, uh, the nuns, the claimants who are, are not religiously affiliated, um, they are significantly less uh, likely to succeed in um, uh, free exercise claims. In our study, uh, they were likely to succeed at about a 25% rate, whereas it's up to 39% uh, overall. I understand that. For, for my purposes, though, it's not necessarily important whether they succeed or not. It's important that they are bringing the claims, right? Because my, my point is this is an issue. I think that's right. And I think the, but the other aspect of it, which I think fits in with, with uh, uh, what Steve is talking about too, is that the reason uh, that they fail is because it's difficult to discern that there's really anything religious about the claims that they are making, uh, as opposed to a claim that's really something more political or otherwise. So um, in, in one of the things that, uh, that we're all aware of is that the term nuns is really uh, a broad term that covers a lot of people for, across a very diverse group. Uh, certainly some among the nuns are what we might describe as militant secularists who want to displace any religious worldview with, with a non-religious worldview. But that is a distinct minority among the nuns. And most of the nuns are probably more likely to accurately described as being either inactive believers, they're believers, but not particularly active and affiliated, uh, or indifferent non-believers. They, um, uh, they don't identify themselves as a non-believer, but they're indifferent uh, uh, about religion. And some of this, I think, fits in with what Steve's talking about. Uh, you know, for those of us who do, who believe that the free exercise clause is important and should be understood as a religious exemption and not a general conscience clause, um, one of the reasons for that is, as Steve pointed out, because those people who believe uh, in an outside force believe that they are compelled to do or not to do a certain thing, uh, and they cannot surrender that viewpoint to the general understandings of the population arrived at through democratic principles. Well, if you're truly a nun, well, then you've kind of resigned yourself to democratic principles, haven't you? You've agreed that uh, um, you know I'm you know I'm just one of those in the public square along with everybody else, and if the majority thinks differently than me, then I have no particularly powerful reason to to demand that I be treated differently, um, because I've already made my political argument. I've appealed to to public reason. 
uh, and that's the end of the matter. Where, of course, for traditionalist uh, believers, as, as Steve was saying, that's that's far from the case. You know, it's not not that all traditional believers are saying I am completely devoid of any reason or intellectual basis for my position. That that that's false too. Uh, but they do recognize that uh, uh, there may be revelation, there may be a, 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 um, a supernatural uh, forces that uh, that force them to move in a particular direction. Okay, well, Steve, you want to get back in? Yeah, so, I mean, all of this is just fascinating. One thing I'll emphasize is I, you know, um, I appreciated in your paper, Mark, where you showed and, and what Greg showed that nuns are bringing claims, and I would expect that. The question, though, in my mind is, are they are enough nuns bringing claims that we no longer have an administrable free exercise regime? So I would expect claims to come out. I also will note, though, that I think a lot of the claims I've seen so far tend to be very much related to either vaccine mandates or the pandemic. And that was a highly, highly politicized era in the world for a whole lot of reasons. I'm not convinced that that's going to continue to carry over into just mainstream life as we move forward. It may. I'm always ready. To, I'm always happy and willing to be proven wrong. But uh, I, I really do think there was something strange going on with the pandemic. And I wonder if when we take that out, if we're not going to see just a world where many nuns are happy to go about doing things that don't conflict with the culture, they don't need exemptions. There'll be some who bring claims, but the vast majority won't. Greg? I, I do think that the pandemic period may turn out to uh, have been aberrational in, in the way in which a lot of these things are handled. We certainly know that things were political. There's some indication that the, the, the political views uh, colored the way in which religious exemptions from uh, vaccine mandates, uh, mask mandates, uh, other sorts of things took place. So uh, as Steve rightly pointed out at the symposium, as we do our next 10 years of study, we're going to have to include uh, uh, um, coding for uh, COVID and pandemic related cases to see if those things are something different. It's also possible, of course, that the, that the politicization and the polarization of the pandemic has actually triggered a new era uh, uh, in which religious liberty uh, claims will be more politicized than, it, as, as we said in our study uh, about free exercise claims in the Arizona Law Review, things appeared to be moving to an equilibrium in which partisan uh, influencers were not playing a role on the free exercise clause. And we even have been founding a diminishing partisan uh, impact on establishment clause claims. It's of course possible, and we'll have to explore that as we look at 2016 to 2025, whether that triggered a renewed uh, polarization on religious liberty cases. So Steve, I want to get to you in a second, but before I do, I just want to, I want to point out to listeners and to both of you that I, I've been banging on about this for like 10 years now. And there was, there was a case 10 years ago, which had nothing to do with COVID. It was very interesting, a case from Virginia in which uh, someone who called herself a spiritual advisor, she went by the name of Psychic Sophie, that was her commercial name, um, wanted to be zoned into a commercial district. And under our lupa, she said she was being discriminated against on the basis of her religious belief. And she was a nun. She was someone who brought together lots of different religious traditions. And the Fourth Circuit actually said she wasn't a religion. Now, I suppose you could say, okay, well, that's another sport, right? There are not going to be a lot of spiritual advisors who are bringing lawsuits, but but it's not only COVID cases. Okay, Steve, I know you want to say something. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not only COVID cases, but I guess I have a question maybe for you, Mark, first, and then I'd love to hear Greg's thoughts. But um, 
as we know, one of the problems you have when talking about the nuns is every survey seems to categorize what constitutes a nun differently. They don't necessarily break them out well. And, and Mark, you hinted at this earlier, but one thing I noticed in the COVID cases is we've got people who are not nuns. They're clearly part of organized religions that would meet anyone's definition of religion, but they've got these very idiosyncratic views. So you mentioned the Christian case that you talked about. Um, there were a lot of, you know, for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah, its top leadership encouraged all its members to get vaccinated. But then you have lots of individual members who said, well, I feel like God's telling me to do something different. So I guess my question for you, Mark, is when we talk about this, should we consider those people among the idiosyncratic nuns we're worried about here? They're clearly not nuns the way we've been talking about nuns, and yet they have these idiosyncratic beliefs that point towards a risk of everyone becoming a law unto themselves. Yeah, right? that's a great question. I, I would put them together for these purposes. You know, Tara Isabella, Tara Isabella Burton has a really interesting book called Strange Rights, and she refers to such people as religious hybrids. That is, people who are inside a particular faith, but also incorporate lots of elements of spirituality from outside that faith. And one example she gives is a Presbyterian minister who also claims to be a practicing Buddhist. And there are a lot of such people. Now, how should we treat them? In my paper, I say, okay, well, you have to distinguish between genuine intra-faith disputes in which, you know, every religion has minority and majority strains, and, you know, there may be different ones in different, on different issues. And I think all of those people could be considered part of a religion from someone who is truly idiosyncratic on his own, like, in my opinion, and speaking only descriptively, I, I'm not judging this at all, Someone who says, you know, my Christian belief tells me God doesn't want masks because masks dishonor his creation. That's really not a genuine intrafaith dispute in Christianity. That, that really is a very idiosyncratic understanding of things. And I think, I think of those people as kind of like nuns. Um, but Greg, what, do you want to say anything about this? Well, um, we, we talked about this in, in terms of your, your paper, uh, Mark, uh, uh, in saying that those who are outside of, uh, far outside of the mainstream and cannot point to some uh, uh, church uh, institutional, more congregational support for a viewpoint should not be given the benefit uh, uh, of exemptions. And it does run against this very problem that we're describing here. You know, an example that I gave during the symposium was to talk about uh, uh, a Catholic pacifist uh, who says, uh, I feel called, I'm a, I'm a believing Catholic, but I feel called by God to, to be a pacifist, so I resist uh, uh, being drafted, I resist uh, building military weapons, etc. Of course, the overall Catholic doctrine um, uh, recognizes that war, sadly, may be uh, necessary on occasion. There is a just war doctrine. And yet, at the same time, within the Catholic tradition, there has always been respect for uh, groups that uh, take a pacifist view. And so, I would think that both ought to be treated as, as raising legitimate viewpoints, uh, even though one is perhaps not perfectly consonant with uh, uh, the catechism of the Catholic faith. Yeah, I agree with that, Greg. As I said at the panel, I don't, in fact, to my mind, that doesn't raise a particularly hard issue. That's like the Thomas case, um, which is from the Supreme Court in 1981, in which there was a Jehovah's Witness who said he didn't feel he could in good conscience work on weapons. And apparently that was a genuine dispute within the Jehovah's Witness religion because other Jehovah's Witnesses at the same factory did work on weapons. And the court said, well, that's okay. The person who claims he can't work on weapons is exercising his religion. And I would agree with that because that is 
that is a genuine dispute, just as you're saying, you're saying pacifism is. If I could add another thing about Catholicism, I mean, as I understand it, the Catholic Church also said people could get these COVID vaccines, but there were some Catholics who said no because of because they thought the vaccines were problematic for moral reasons. And the church's view is, even though we think that these vaccines are illicit, no one can be made to accept medical treatment against his will. So I would say that a Catholic who says, I'm not going to get a vaccine, I think is exercising his or her religion because that's what his or her religion says. Greg? I think the, the, the difficult question, I, I, I agree with everything that you said, but the difficult question then is drawing that line. You know, there, so I, I see, see and agree with you that I don't think you can draw the line in terms of, of the pacifist tradition among a, su- a subculture within the Catholic Church. Whereas on the, the opposite side, if someone were to claim that they were Catholic and they had a religious liberty interest in getting an abortion in a state that bans abortion, I think most of us would have a hard time saying that that has any possible legitimate connection to Catholic teaching uh, that could be could be justified. Uh, so that may be an easy case on the other side, but they're going to be difficult cases in the middle of trying to draw those lines. For sure. And I, I mean, I, I mean, maybe I'm just hedging here, but I, I think that's something that has to be worked out on a case by case basis, the way courts often work things out on a case by case basis. And uh, I mean, I can't give you a categorical on or off switch for for any particular claim. So, OK, Steve. So, I mean, that was one thing I actually very much appreciated about your your article, Mark, is that you're you're saying communities should maybe have more weight than it currently does, but it's part of a broader analogical approach, right? Where we an- analogize to what we know is religion and see if this new person might fit into that category. So lack of community isn't just a categorical ban, but it would that person would have a harder road to hoe. I'm still, though, in the camp. Let me throw out some other numbers. I, I threw these at you all at the symposium, and you were probably I didn't give you warning I was going to, so I'd love to get your response to it. So some of the some of research out there, um, Springtide Research Institute uh, surveyed, you know, 10,000 young people from 13 to 25, and some of the things that they came up with were like their, their religious practices were things like singing, painting, or listening to music, walking in nature, um, making donations, writing in journals. Those are not the types of practices that are going to result in claims for free exercise exemption such that we need to worry about a world where everyone becomes a law unto themselves. They're very different from the Amish who can't use technology or the, the Muslim who feels like they must wear a hijab or, the, or the, again, the Christian baker who can't service certain events. So I'm curious... I'm curious how you feel about that. Again, I expect some of the nuns to bring claims, but as I look at their practices and it seems like the way they hold their beliefs, I'm just not convinced we're going to see so many that we have to worry about them. Well, I don't know, Greg, did you want to say something about that? Because what I would say is sometimes the prominence of something can become more important than the quantity. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I think Steve is right that we're likely to see fewer claims that really resemble religion at all uh, from from the nuns. Uh, But when we do see those claims, they may be the kind of thing that draws particular attention. uh, And the courts in resolving that may find it uh, difficult to resolve it without uh, resulting in some changes in in religious doctrine, uh, the sorts of things that Mark fears. So uh, I'd raise that as one caution here. In other words, you, you both may be right. That is that uh, Steve is right that these claims are going to be fewer, uh, and Mark may be right, and but when they do come, they may be very troubling. 
Well, I think that might be a good place to end on that very ironic note from you, Greg. So, so thank you very much. I want to thank both our guests for today, both Steve Collis from the University of Texas and Greg Sisk from the University of St. Thomas. It's been a lot of fun having you. Please come back now that you know the way. Um, but for now, that's another episode of Legal Spirits. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org. That's one word or also on Apple iTunes and Android and Spotify and other streaming platforms. That's all for now. See you next time.